say we all. This is going to get pretty interesting. Define interest. Oh God, oh God, we're all going to die. Only try to realize the truth. There is no spoon. Delicious strawberry flavor. You are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. And now, from the end of the universe, bringing you the latest in science fiction movies and television shows, here are your hosts. Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 131, part B, I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. And um, as we said in the regular show, uh, or the first part of this show, we were going to do our interview with Mark Okren Sekren. Now, Mark Okren, Miles, how would they know Mark Okren? Well, if uh, they're a Star Trek fan, and even if they are not necessarily a Star Trek fan, they have, of course, heard of Klingons. Right. And, and not only that, they've heard of Vulcans. Vulcans also, and if, you, if you've watched Big Bang Theory, you will have heard our, our, our friends uh, use uh, the Klingon language on the Big Bang Theory show a few times. Absolutely, and uh, if you watched the Disney movie Atlantis, he's credited with creating the Atlantean language. Oh, very good. So this guy is a linguist, Mark Okren, who helped create the Vulcan language and create is credited with creating the Klingon language. And uh, not only that, he put out a book and uh, a CD if you want to learn, if you want, you know, teach yourself how to speak in Klingonese. Right. Conversational Klingon. Right. So recently did some acts in of Shakespeare in Klingon. Oh, very good. And was a part of helping with a Klingon opera. Oh. So so I guess it maybe it's the Klingon opera that they always mention, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. That'd be cool to see. But anyways, so he's um, he he is he sat down with us at Farpoint. He's always he's a guest at Farpoint. He's kind mm-hmm. of this honorary guest. He's been there almost every year, mm-hmm. and you'll hear him talk about that in the interview just a little bit. But what a great humble man! And you know, I felt you know I, my background is English. I'm an English teacher by trade, mm-hmm. and studied linguistics in college. So it was fascinating just to talk to him about where does language come from. I was impressed with him when we sat in on a session. It was a far point the year before, and how he would you know talk about it with um, I believe it was uh, the search for Spock about as far as you know the Klingon language and Leonard Nimoy making sure that the actors were saying it right. And he would consult with them and and and, and how it changed depending on what they said. Sometimes it, d- it did change. Yes. Yeah. So fascinating interview. We hope you enjoy it. If you are a lover of Star Trek or or, or just uh, are interested in linguistics and how language gets played into any sci-fi show, here is an interview for you. This is the only Klingon colony on the border of Federation space. You cannot deny that Starfleet would be happy to see Krios gain its independence. It would reduce your vulnerability to an attack. Governor, you speak as if we are enemies and not allies. And you speak the lies of attack. Gentlemen, you swear well, Picard. You must have Klingon blood in your veins. Governor, I will report to you as soon as the analysis of that weapon is complete. Captain. Commander. Enterprise, three to transport. So, Scott here, and I'm sitting down with Mark Okren, and if you don't know this name, uh, you at least heard his influence somewhere, especially if you are a Star Trek fan and have heard or even know what Klingon is. So, uh, Mark, thank you so much for sitting down with the Sci-Fi Under podcast, just to talk a little bit about who you are and what you've done and, the, and how this all came about. Okay. And, um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. You are a linguist by training. Right, by right? training, I'm a linguist, right? I uh, have a doctorate in linguistics from the University of California, Berkeley, and a specializing, specializing in mainly American Indian languages of the West Coast, right. uh, mostly from those around the San Francisco Bay Area. 
uh, and also studied a bit about Southeast Asian languages, Chinese and, and Burmese and things like that. And what, what drew you to those languages as being kind of the emphasis of your study? You could have gone any which way in linguistics. Right. Uh, well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's whatever you get exposed to by accident, <laughs> okay. basically, is what it was. When I was in undergraduate school, I started studying linguistics, which I started taking because I said, well, this is cool. I never heard of it before. Let's try it out. Uh, as an assignment, I was given basically a shoebox. This is pre-computer time. Okay. Given a shoebox with little slips with words from this uh, Indian language from not, from not too far from where I went to school uh, as a project, uh, just an exercise. But I got enchanted by the whole thing and kept studying those languages and expanding from that and so on and so forth. So that was that one. And the, the Southeast Asian language was one is a requirement for the degree, uh, undergraduate degree in linguistics, is you had to have a language other than an Indo you, well, you could have Latin or Greek or a non-Indo-European language. And I wasn't really interested in Latin or Greek. And the only non-Indo-European language that was offered at the time was Chinese. So okay. I took Chinese. Okay. So that's why. It's just because that's what was there. Right, you, know, right, you, right. you order from what's on the menu. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, this, of course... Um, so you have the Indian language as kind of this background, the study, right. anyway. and but ultimately this does influence a little bit about what you become known for in the sci-fi circles, right? Yeah, but not on purpose. Not on purpose. Yeah. So tell us that story. Tell us yeah. how that all transpired. Uh, I mean, I was I was asked to create the Klingon language for Star Trek. III. Okay, so how did that happen? Well, that happened because I created the Vulcan for Star Trek Two. Okay. So <laughs> okay, so let's back up. So let's back up to that. Let's back know. up to the Vulcan. How did you? And that was once again just luck. Uh, I was I was in Los Angeles for something else and had some time, which I hadn't counted on, and got on the phone and started calling up friends and things. You know, let's go out to lunch, let's go out to dinner. One of my friends said, you know, where are you calling me from right now? And I told her where. And she said, well, that's like a mile from here. Why don't you come by for lunch? Okay, well, here, where she was, is Paramount Studios. Because she worked for Harv Bennett, who was the executive producer of Star Trek II. Okay. Uh, and I'd known her for a long time. Actually, I've known him for a long time, too. I knew them in the, in the same context from years before. Anyway, she and I and, and another, I guess, secretary to another producer, there's lots of producers, um, went out to lunch. And in the course of the lunch conversation, somehow it came out that I studied linguistics. Uh, and the, the other secretary, who I had not known before this day, said, oh, that's interesting because we've been talking to the linguistics department at UCLA. And I said, why? That's odd. Uh, she said, well, there's a scene in the movie where Mr. Spock and this female Vulcan who we so far never met before, turned out her name is Savik, right. or Savik, depending. <laughs> um, this little conversation, and when we shot the scene, the actors were speaking English. But now that we're in post-production and putting it all together, it would make much more sense if they were speaking Vulcan. So what we decided to do was hire this person from UCLA to basically make up gobbledygook that matched the lip movements. Then they would dub it in like you dub a foreign film, and then we'd put in subtitles. Right. And I said, I thought that was a really good idea to hire a linguist to do that, because linguists will understand uh, sounds, you know, what sounds you can see, what sounds you can't see, so they can make the sounds match the lips. Right. Uh, and she said, well, we thought it was a good idea, too, but it's turned into a headache. And now this is more than 30 years ago or something. Right. I honestly don't remember what the headache was all right. about, but it had nothing to do with the language itself. It had to do with logistics or something. Right. It just wasn't working out. She said, I don't know what we're going to do. We have to have this taken care of right away. And I said, what do you mean right away? She says, it's got to be done by the end of this week, which is exactly how long I was in town. <laughs> right, right. I said, well, I can, do, I can do that. <laughs> and my friend said, yeah, he can do that. He's got the same kind of degrees as those people at UCLA do. At that point, the associate producer happened to walk by. <laughs> they said, hey, we just solved the Vulcan problem. He says, what are you talking about? And they told him, he said, come see me after lunch. <laughs> so that, that's how that happened. Now, the fact that I knew Harv Bennett, the producer, is not irrelevant to the story because he was the one who ultimately hired me. So it's not like hiring someone just off the street you never heard of, blah, blah, right, blah. Right, there was a connection. known him for a while. We talked about languages and things in the past. But that's not why I was there. I was there for a sandwich, you know. <laughs> anyway, so, I, so I, they showed me the little bit of the film, Star Trek II, with this little scene. Uh, I wrote down what they were saying in English, then went back and figured out some sounds that would match the lips, went in the next day uh, and had to teach the actress playing Savik how to do her lines. And it was someone brand new to Hollywood. Like I think this might have been her first film or second film or something. Someone named Kirstie Alley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we worked... In, totally unknown now. Totally unknown. <laughs> in so we worked together and she recorded her lines. Uh, and then a couple of days later went back because I had to 
teach Leonard Nimoy how to do his lines. And I got there on time. He got there on time. And whoever brings the donuts got there on time. And like, there's nobody else there. You know? So I'm in a room with, you know, with Mr. Spock and Donuts. And I obviously knew who he was. He didn't know who I am. Right. So I went up and I introduced myself. He's, oh, yeah. They told me you would be here. Uh, show me my lines. So I showed him what I'd done. And he says, all right, all right. Now, if we change this to this, will that still work as far as lips go? I said, yeah. All right, let's make that change. That'll be easier to say. If we change this to this, will that work? No. All right, we'll leave that alone. And so on. So we modified it a little bit. And then he recorded his lines. I left. Because I was actually out there for, for, for a different job. I had to go do it. Okay. Um, and I'm driving down the freeway, realizing that I just taught Mr. Spock how to speak Vulcan. I thought that was pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> No, you had been. And I thought, and I thought that that was the end of it. I thought this was very cool. You know? Had you been a fan of this? Had you been a fan of track? Yeah, not not as much as I'd become after this. But right, right. But yeah, when when it was on when the series, the original series, was on TV the first time it was when right. I was in college. Okay. And at that time, unlike now, people didn't have TVs in their dorm rooms. Probably, right. maybe one person on the floor or right. something like that. Right. So I was aware of Star Trek, but didn't see it very often. Sometimes. But not very often. But I got the right place. Yeah, to be the right place at the right time. There was no VCRs or anything. Right, right. No no, no DVR. Right. Um, So I kind of got caught up in it, like most other people, when it started rerunning and stuff like that. So so when I started doing it, well, well, my friend Harvard and all that were going to make Star Trek. Wow, you know. Right. What a great thing. This is not trivial. And people said, right after I did that, people say, you know, you know, wasn't that wasn't that interesting that you made up this language and da 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 for, for this movie? I said, yeah, the fact that I made up a language for any movie that, that they actually used, right, is is pretty cool. Yeah, the fact that it was Star Trek makes it really special. Right, you know, right. It's, 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 extra, it's an extra icing on the cake that it was Star Trek. Yeah. So that was so that was Vulcan, right? That was Vulcan. Uh-huh. So then, about a year and a half later, the phone rings. It's Harv calling again. He says, "Well, we're making another one, Star Trek 3. He says, "And I was checking around. And he says the villains are going to be the Klingons." As I was checking around, I discovered that there's nobody in charge of the Klingon language. You did the Vulcan. Do you want to do Klingon? <laughs> I said, yes. But that was very different because that was starting virtually, not quite, but virtually from scratch. Now, up to this point, even though Klingons had been in, you know, the series before, they had never spoken in a foreign language. Almost. Almost. Okay, in the, in the original TV series, they did not. Okay. They referred to it in, in, the, in the episode Trouble with Tribbles, which is one of the famous right, right. famous episodes. Uh, there's a barroom brawl. Okay. And at some point before they break out in fight, one of the Klingons says, and I'm not quoting this exactly right, right. but something like, you know, uh, Klingons are becoming so important and influential, that's why half the quadrant is learning how to speak Klingonese, is what he says. Right. Um, but he doesn't give us any examples of Klingonese. We don't right. we don't hear it. So the only only things we know about the Klingon language, I guess, are the character names. There's Kor and Koloth and a few other right. names. But that's it. In the first movie, Star Trek the Motion Picture, the very, very beginning of the movie is the Klingons. There's three Klingon ships going off somewhere. And you see inside of what I guess is the main ship, and there's the captain or commander, whatever his title is. And he speaks Klingon. He barks out commands in Klingon with subtitles. That's the beginning, the real beginning of the Klingon language. That was before I was involved. Right. Uh, and those lines were actually made up by James Doohan, the guy who played okay. Scotty. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and they were spoken by Mark Leonard. He, he played that role, the Klingon role, uh, who normally played Sarek, the Vulcan, Spock's father. Okay. So the true origins of the Klingon language is that it was made up by a Federation engineer and spoken by a Vulcan. The Klingons don't like to hear that, so I don't say right, that. Right, right, right. But anyway, I took those lines... As the start, I wrote down what, what they said, uh, you know, phonetically, best I could, listening to it over and over and over again, um, and the meaning, um, and then imposed a structure on it, because if, if he said a three-syllable phrase, is that one word or two words or three words? Right. Okay. I don't know. Nobody <laughs> knows. So I just decided, okay, the first syllable is one word and the second two syllables is another word, just because, because you have to do something. Right. And whatever decision I made, I just stuck with it and took a, made an inventory, you know, a list of the sounds from that, from that movie. So those are all sounds in Klingon and built on that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, started bringing different ideas, both, both for the sounds and for the grammar from, from all over the place. For, so for the sounds, my, uh, the sources were the original picture. Uh, the script for Star Trek Three 
says that the villain, the main Klingon villain, is named Krug. And it will say in the script, Krug says in his guttural Klingon, and then there'll be the line in English. Well, if the script says it's guttural, I guess it's guttural. So I put in some <laughs> kinds of sounds right, there. Right, right. Um, and I also wanted to make it be clearly not English. Uh, so I put in sounds from other languages that are not sounds in English, and not sounds in European languages either. Uh, but there's no sound in Klingon that's not found in some language in the world right. somewhere or other. The collection of sounds is unique. And I, and I pick sounds such that the collection shouldn't appear really in any human language. They don't go together. Right. A real language, a real human language wouldn't have that set of sounds. Which makes it sound alien. Which makes it sound alien. Yeah. But, but any individual sound can be found somewhere or other. Right. Because I had to make sure that people could say it. You know, that, that, right. that, that, that a human tongue and throat and all that could make those kind noises. the purpose if you're trying to make a movie, right? Exactly. So that's where that's where the sounds came from. The, the basic, you know, structure was from the first movie, the, the choppy, jump, boom, boom, boom kind of thing. Um, for the grammar, I had to think about how the grammar is going to work. And for the basic parts of the grammar, the basic syntax, you know, you have a subject and an object and a verb, uh, the, the the doer of the action, the receiver of the action, and what the action is. And those three elements can come mathematically in any of six possible. Permutations: you know, okay. subject, object, verb, verb, subject, object. So there's six possible orderings of those. And if you look around at the world's languages, you'll find some language or other representing each of those right. six. But some are far, far, far more common than others. So the word order that English has, which is subject and then verb and then object, right. is one of the most common in the world. Verb at the end of a sentence is a very common one. Uh, the most uncommon are the ones where the object comes first. So the one I picked for Klingon was object, and then verb, and then subject, which happens to be backwards from English. But I didn't pick it because it was backwards from English. I picked it because it's very unusual, very rare in the world, in the world's languages. And therefore, not to insult the people who speak one of those languages, it's less human right. than because the others are, and less therefore common. less common. Right, And yeah. therefore, it was a good candidate for this alien Klingon. Um, so I just started doing it, and... and to get back to the Indians and the Southeast Asian and all that, you can't help but be influenced by what you know. I was trying to make stuff up, but I realized as I was going along that this is just like Navajo. This is just like <laughs> something Chinese or something. So I would stop doing that because I was the ideas coming into my head were from what I was familiar with, right? Or what I'd studied. Even if I just studied it a little bit, I'd say, "Oh, there's that Himalayan language that does that. That's right. cool. Let's put that in there." But only do that for one part of it, so right. it wasn't a copy of that of that right. language's grammar. But the basic the basic structure of the language is, is is similar to the kinds of languages that I worked on. I realized after the fact because those are the ones I was I was comfortable with because of familiarity. Right, right. That's, that's awesome. That, that, that's so. This is really the syntax of it. So, and this became the basis of the, the third Star Trek. Right. right. So this is the language used in the third Star Trek, and the procedure was I translated all the lines. It said in the script which lines were supposed to be said in Klingon. Okay. Because the Klingons spoke English and Klingon both, depending on what's going on. Uh, although they had to make a decision early on in the script writing about how come the Klingons sometimes are speaking Klingon and sometimes they're speaking English right. when they're talking to each other. Right. Now, it's one thing when, when, when the Klingons are talking to the Federation. Yeah, they'll talk English because Federation's guys don't bother with right, right. foreign languages. So, so what was the rule of thumb behind it? So the rule of thumb behind they made up, and it's actually in the script, like a, like a, in a preface to the script is Klingon is a, is a hierarchical society. There's higher classes and lower classes. The higher classes in Klingon is military. And they're more educated than the lower classes. And part of a good education is learning other languages. So they learned this, what we started to call Federation Standard, rather right. than English. They learned that. Uh, and then they used it not only to, to talk to people whose native language is that Federation Standard, but also to talk to each other even in the presence of other Klingons, of lower-level Klingons, as a sign of a couple things, of, of solidarity, of, of the higher level in the hierarchy, uh, of a way to keep secrets, right. the way, the way that, that, that parents who speak a foreign language and their kids don't will talk in that right, language. Right, 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 right. All those things. So there was a good sociolinguistic reason for the Klingons to sometimes be speaking Klingon oh, and sometimes makes sense. English. Yeah. Makes sense. It wasn't arbitrary. It was The true real reason is they didn't want to load up the movie with subtitles, but we don't say that. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, 
you mean talk about subtitling? That's kind of your background too. I mean, you, you've been working closed captioning. I know that's kind of mm-hmm. separate from track, but that's right. something that's a background for you too, right? Yeah, I've been doing closed captioning since it's, since before it started. Right. right. Well, and well, now it's about kind of, my understanding. You're kind of one of the pioneers yeah. into that. Yeah, there's, there's, there's about two or three of us still left. <laughs> still okay, good. Right. Um, so that was Star Trek three, right? Right. And Star Trek four. You're back in the picture. Right? Star Trek four only had whales in it, so <laughs> who cares? Yeah, about yeah, you didn't Star Trek five. No. Star Trek five. You did. You were brought back in. Yeah. Star Trek V was brought back in, uh, but what happened between Star Trek Three and Star Trek V is this book, okay? Okay. The, the Klingon Dictionary, because while I was working on Star Trek Three, from time to time, people would come up to me, uh, mem- members of the crew, I don't mean the crew of the Enterprise, but but the the filmmaking crew, the, okay. the lighting people and sound people and scenery, scenery builders and all that. And they said, you're the language guy, right? And I said, yeah. And then and they thought it was interesting, and they, they tried to guess what it was based on and say, how do you say this in Klingon and stuff? And I thought, you know, if these guys are interested, then maybe Star Trek fans will be interested. Well, why not? Right. <laughs> so I proposed the idea of, of a book, you know, the Klingon Dictionary, explaining how the language works. And Pocket Books, which is the, the official publisher yeah. for, for, these, for these things, said yes. So I wrote this book that came out. It was supposed to come out when the movie came out, when Star Trek Three came out. It was delayed for all kinds of ridiculous reasons, which annoyed me at the time, but in retrospect was a really good thing, because after the movie was shot, we went into post-production, and they would do things like, there were some lines were originally spoken in English by Klingons, that they said, you know, we ought to speak Klingon. So now I had to do this dubbing in thing again, but now it wasn't just gobbledygook. Now I had to match the vocabulary and grammar in the rest of the movie, so it it was a harder thing to do. Or they changed subtitles. A line of what's you know that I made up to mean one thing now suddenly means something else. <laughs> so had the book come out when it was supposed to, it wouldn't have incorporated all this post-production stuff, and yeah. it wouldn't have matched the movie. Right. Fortunately, because of the delay, I could make all these changes, so so it did right. match the movie. But anyway, once it came out, uh, working on the fifth film, I had to re- rely on the book. Okay. Okay. And if there was something in the book, I had to do that, even if I didn't like it. <laughs> So it was hard to do. I couldn't just make stuff up like right. I did with Star Trek Three. Star Trek Three, whatever, we're going along. Star Trek Three, if an actor made a mistake, but it still sounded cool. It made canon. It, it, it became right, right, and I made a little note. You know, I wanted him to say ta. He said toe. Okay, it's toe. <laughs> but in Star Trek Five, I couldn't do that unless it was a, a new word that wasn't in the dictionary because right. it had it had to match. So it was a harder thing to do actually than starting than starting from scratch. So you were constrained by your own rules, right? Plus the actors uh, in. Star Trek Three when they spoke Klingon, uh, Christopher Lloyd played oh, the, yeah. played Krug. He had he had the bulk of the lines, uh, and they were and they were mostly commands. He was great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most of the lines were pretty short. There was marking out commands and things like that. In Star Trek Five, there's conversations, so the actors had to learn longer lines. Okay, which they found to be an interesting challenge. One is because they're learning what to them is is nonsense syllables. Well, they also had to learn each other's lines. So they knew when to talk, right? Because they, they they realized well, they each learned their own lines. This is this is Claw uh, and Vixus with the characters of Spice Williams and, and Todd Bryant. The other way around, she was she was Vixus. Um, they memorized their lines and they sat down to run them together. And she said her line, and he just sat there. <laughs> oh, you're done. You know? <laughs> so they had to learn each other's lines so they could right. carry on the conversation. So it was a, a very different kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And then Star Trek VI was 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 more of the same, uh, but this time all of a sudden there's Shakespeare in there <laughs> because the, you haven't the, heard the Klingon. Do you heard that's it? That's right, Klingon, right. right? And the main the main Klingon villain there is Chang, right? You know, played by Christopher Plummer. That's <laughs> <I've laughs> Christopher Plummer to speak to him. And uh, this is a hard job. This is a hard <laughs> job. <laughs> and he in the in the course of the movie in the, in the script there were a number of Shakespearean quotes in Klingon. <laughs> None of them ended up in the final cut. There's a number of English ones still in there. In fact, a lot of English ones still in there. But the Klingon ones all got cut out of them. They were never never filmed. I mean, every day there's a script change. Right. Um, and so for whatever reason, they just didn't work their way in. And the one that did work its way in was one that was not in the original script, which is to be or not to be. Okay. It was not in the original script. And uh, to do that, I, I just showed up on the set one day, and the director, Nick Myers, said, said uh, I, I have a new word, a new, a new phrase that I need. For the film, I said, okay, you know, what's that? He says, to be or not to be. And I said, okay. And I thought, oh no. <laughs> because, if you read the book, I make a big stink about the fact that in Klingon there's no verb to be, it doesn't oh. exist. 
And there's other ways to, to express and cling on what we express in English, you know, in, in making use of to be in its various forms. So I said, okay. Um, and I thought about it. I said, Cause I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to make up a word to be. Okay. So I said to Nick, I said, what if it means to live or not to live? He said, that's okay. He said, go tell Chris. Oh, Chris is Christopher Plummer. Okay. So I go over to Christopher Plummer. And he says, ah, he says, I understand you have a new phrase to teach me. And I said, yes. He said, okay, say it. Well, the word for live is yin. It's in the dictionary. I can't right. change it. Uh, the word for or is pa. Uh, and the, the, the word for not, not is actually a suffix that you slap onto the verb. So, so to not live is yin bet. Okay. So there's a number of ways I could have done this, you know. But I did it the, the, the short and sweet way that, that meant live or not live, which is yin pa, yin bet. And he goes, yin? I said, yes. And he said, that's, that's too wimpy. Think of something else. <laughs> ah! <laughs> so I thought and thought, and I said, well, how about, how about if we do this? What if we, what if we say, tach pa, tach bet? And he goes, tach. Tach is good. We'll, we'll keep that. Okay. So, okay. Well, up until that moment, tach was a suffix that meant to continue doing whatever the verb is. So eat plus tach means keep on eating. Walk plus tach means keep walking. Uh, I kind of promoted it to be a verb in its own right, that it means to continue to go on, to endure, something like that. So tach pa, tach be, it means to go on or not to go on, to endure or not to endure, right. which fits the meaning just right. fine. It does. And, and that became, but that's the, the, the Shakespeare line. But before that, I was tra- I had to figure out what a Klingon petard was, you know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, the three main movies are the ones that you worked on, right? Or did you work on others after? That? A little bit. I worked a little bit on the Next Generation, uh, and yes, because they had some Klingon. Yeah, the, the original Klingon the Next Generation was pre me. I mean, it was after after Star Trek three, right? But they didn't use me or didn't use the book in the first season of Next Gen. I think there might be only one episode or something. After that, the next couple of episodes in the second season, they did. I, I did work with them on those, and then they started relying on the book. More and more and more. So some of the uh, writers were really good users of the book, and some of them not quite so good. So some of the Klingon in the series is, is pretty good, and some of it is from another part of the empire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> another um, part of the uh, right. culture. Right, exactly. The area. Uh, and then I worked on, on the new movie, the 19, uh, 2009 Star Trek. I saw that you but there's, but there's, no, there's no Klingon in that. There was originally some Klingon written for that, but those scenes got cut out right. early, early on. In the process, but there's Romulan and Vulcan, mostly Romulan in there. And did you did you help out with the, the Vulcan in that then? Yeah, and Romulan, Romulan and Vulcan. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. It's mostly background shouting and screaming and you know. There is a, there's some prison scenes they shot. There was on the X special. I don't know if they, if they were. Done. That was that was the scene. Those were the scenes that were cut out. They were the that, scenes that yeah. were cut. Okay. And and those scenes uh, shot. I don't know if that was intended to be the final version or they were testing or what. But right. yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So you had this whole history. And and, I, and even rumors of you helping out with the Klingon opera? A year and a <laughs> half ago, a year and a half ago, in Holland, right, uh, there was the world premiere, the world's first, Earth's first presentation of a genuine Klingon opera. Okay. It's, it's called Oo, right. which means universe. All right. And it's the story of Kalis, uh, who's the founder of the Klingon Empire, and how he came to, to power, and what he did, and all this, all this sort of thing. Uh, and this has been workshopped in Holland for a couple of years before this came along with government art support, you know, uh, and workshopped actually in New York too. They, they got a grant to come to New York and workshop it. And I got involved at, at some point, and they they wrote the libretto, the words, in English, not in Dutch, in, in English, and then I translated them into Klingon. Uh, I think in the program for the opera, it says the other way around. It was originally written in Klingon, and Mark translated it to English for the program. But the, no, of not. course, yeah. But, uh, um, and the actors, the singers, you know, learned the lines. The, the composer, well, actually, there was two composers. Uh, the first composer sent me an email while he was working on the thing and said, you say, meaning I said somewhere, that the Klingon musical scale consists of nine tones. I said, all right, I, I guess I said that. In one of the books I said that. Um, he said, how does that work? In other words, is, are they evenly spaced? Or like the first three closer together, then there's a gap, and then the fourth one? Because if you do it this way, the harmony of this, and the, the vibrations, and the this, and the that. Way more thought than you put into it. Exactly. <laughs> and he said, so is it this way, is it that? If you do it, it'll sound kind of 
the harmonies will sound good. In other ways, it'll be kind of discordant, which might be good for Klingons. And how does it work? <laughs> so I wrote back to him and said, clearly you've thought about this a whole lot more than I have. Uh, do what you think is best. So he quit. Not because of that. <laughs> okay. Not because of that. Um, but he put this whole musical theory together that for some other reason couldn't carry on, so they gave the theory to another guy who followed it, whatever this first guy worked on, and wrote this incredible music, and they built instruments, they, they designed instruments. You know, there's one string thing that no one else in the world can play except this one guy. Uh, and there's, you, you, there's percussion banging on various things, and there's one wind instrument. A woman played a, a flute, a regular flute, but she also played plumbing pipes and all kinds of, all kinds okay. of things. And it's, it's, it's really amazing. It's really amazing. And it played in the, in the Hague for four or five performances. One then, a couple weeks later, it played in Germany. One performance in the rain. They hadn't counted on that, but they did it anyway because they're good Klingons. Right. And then, you know, scattered performance here and there. Uh, actually, two days ago, of course, I don't know when this is on, but anyway, two, yeah, two, two days ago. Two days ago from Farpoint. From, from, from Farpoint. They did it again in The Hague. Okay. Uh, brought, you know, brought the people back together. And to the best of my knowledge, the next scheduled performance is in Croatia. Oh, right. Yeah. Now, is this, have they filmed it at all? I mean, they, have, they filmed it for their own purposes, you know, put a camera in the back of the room and just let it run. So it's not really good audio or video, but it, there's, a, there's a historical copy of the whole thing. There's a documentary they put together of this performance in the rain in Germany. But it's more of a coming together of the audience because it was a Klingon group uh, that they were performing for. Coming together of the audience. There's only bits and pieces of the performance in there. It's more of the, a, a, a documentary on how, how, you, how this came about rather than the performance itself. It's funny, though. It's good. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that this comes by. Yeah. yeah. And then recently, we, we published uh, the libretto. If you can buy it on Amazon or someplace. Uh, expand it. Because it was the, the, the actual libretto from the operas in there, but we added stuff before and after to flesh out the story. So the actual yeah. story, then. Yeah. In English. In English and Klingon, both. You know, one one page is in, in English, <laughs> like the facing it, right? page, and the facing page is in Klingon. Yeah. And it's in in the English is is, is a very epic style of yeah. English and so on because this is this is the great the great Klingon creation. It's the masterpiece yeah. for the Klingon. That's right. Uh, which is kind of referred to in the in lore, Star Trek lore. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the story, the people who did it, you know, took bits and pieces of, of this was mentioned in this episode. This was mentioned in that episode. This came from this novel, maybe, and then they put it all together. Now, does this have the blessing of CBS, or is this kind of outside of? The whole this is it's like, it's like it's like a fan thing. It's actually published in Albania. Oh great, that's awesome. <laughs> now I have to ask, do you speak fluent Klingon fluently? No. There are people who do. Um, I used to, used to kind of fudge when people asked me that question. <laughs> What's the point? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, the, and the reason I don't, actually, is not because it can't be done. It certainly can. And there's yeah, people, people who do, do it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is because when I was making it up, there was no one to talk to. I mean, I made it up to teach the actors how to say the stuff. They said the line, and that was, it was over. Uh, and I didn't know for a long, long time, that there was people studying it and paying attention and, and talking to each other and writing things and so on and so forth until, it was, until I got a call from this guy named Lawrence Schoen who runs something called the Klingon Language Institute. I never, at that time, I'd never heard of him or it. Right. And he wanted to, to sit down and talk with me. So we did, and I found out that there's people all over the world. And they got together because of the internet. It's because of email right. and the internet that they all found each other. If that weren't the case, they wouldn't have. They might have right. been doing it in their own little rooms. But but they'd be on their own. But they all found each other. There there exists you know a Klingon speaking community. I was in Germany a few months ago at a convention of Klingon speakers, um, mostly from Germany, but from other parts of Europe as well. There was four of us, including me, from North America. Although three of them live in Europe anyway. But so I, I, I I won for coming from the farthest. Uh, and some of them are absolutely fluent, carry on conversations with each other. There was there was two guys there from Sweden who I heard talking English together and talking Klingon together. I never heard them talking Swedish together. Uh, <laughs> true to the movie. Right. right, right. Exactly. Wow. So, I mean, do you understand it when they're speaking it? I understand. I, I understand much of it. Much yeah, of it, much yeah. Of it. Yeah, I'm okay with the grammar. I forget some of the vocabulary. Right, because right. when I was making it up, it was just... Yeah, right. right. Churning right. it out and churning it up. 
to flesh out the book because when I wrote the original dictionary, all the words that I created for the movie, even lines that ended up not in the movie, made their way into the, into the book, the, the words did. But if it was just that, it would have been a really skinny book. There wasn't that right. much Klingon in right. the movie. So, so I had to add stuff. And in adding stuff, that was actually harder doing that than writing the grammar, the, the description of the grammar. Because I say, okay, I'm not going to open up the Underbridge Dictionary and make up a Klingon word for everything. Right. And so I had to pick and choose what to make up words right. for. How am I going to do that? You know, there's a whole universe of words out there. <laughs> yeah. what, what am I going to do? So I made some decisions, and one of the decisions was, as odd as this sounds, there's not going to be any words having, other than the stuff in the movie, any words having anything to do with Klingon culture or geography. Right. Now, what an odd thing to leave out of a dictionary, if you stop and think about right. it. But the reason for that is I'm not a writer of screenplays. I don't write the stories. Right. And I didn't want to make up words that some screenwriter would come along later on and create something or other that contradicted that. Right. And that okay. makes sense. So, so we'll do it the other way around. Let them make up the, the places and the rituals and all this, and, and I'll give them names after the fact. I've changed my mind about that. In the, in the later stuff, I've started to make some stuff up. But originally, I restricted myself in that way. Right. Well, well it was phenomenal. I mean, could be kind of considered the grandfather or the father of this Klingon language. It's kind of interesting. And... Um, just as a side note, it's not the only thing you've created as far as languages go. Right. Well, there's the little bit of Vulcan, and, and more Vulcan for the... Vulcan the and Romulan. And, and Romulan, and, and, and lots of Klingon, mainly Klingon. Main. Uh, but I also worked on a Disney cartoon, animated feature, we're supposed to say. Yeah, animated feature. Uh, cartoon. Called, called, called Atlantis. Atlantis, the Lost Empire, which is a good movie. It, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't, didn't do as well as they'd hoped, but it was a good movie. Yeah, I myself yeah. enjoyed it. You know, the hero is a linguist. Who could ask for more? I know. I mean, come on. Uh, and the the language is key to the plot. Um, this is both both spoken and written uh, Atlantean because they he, the the hero named Milo. Uh, has to deal with these Atlantean people, and they talk this Atlantean language and so forth. And there's writing. He, they find a book with, in, with instructions about how to find Atlantis. And he's the only one who can decipher these, way, these weird little characters in the book. And all of the Atlantean writing in the movie is real. What I mean by that is, is I made up, I translated into Atlantean what, the, what, it's supposed to, what it's supposed to be, and then they changed it to the Atlantean characters. Right. So you didn't come up with the character. No, we had we had great discussions about the characters. I sat at that was in a, in a meeting room at Disney in Burbank, and the room, the big room, was lined. All the walls were lined with examples of writing systems from all around the world that they were looking at to try to get ideas of what to do. Um, and we talked about different kinds of writing, and what I mean by that is there's alphabetic writing where each right. character represents a sound, and there's a syllabary where each character represents a syllable, and there's the Chinese kind of writing where each character represents a word. That's not right. true for those of you who know Chinese. I know that's not true, <laughs> but sort of, and so on. Right. Uh, and we talk about, do you, do, are we going to read it left to right, or right to left, or top to bottom? You know, all these, all these, all these decisions, all these decisions right. to make. Um, and I told them about an, an ancient way of writing where you st it reads left to right, you go along left to right. When you get to the end of the line, you drop down, and the next line is right to left. Right. And when you get to the end of the line, you drop down, and it's left to right, back and forth like that. They thought that was great. So Atlantean is written that way. Uh, and then I suggested that they use a syllabary or something, not an alphabet, because it would be more interesting. And they didn't listen to me, and they made an alphabet. Now, from their point of view, they made the right decision, clearly made the right decision, because... They're thinking, in, in part, it was partly for the movie. The movie, would, it worked fine, and then the glyphs looked good and all that. But it's Disney, okay? I'm going to go to Disneyland, and I want my hat. I'm going to buy a little hat, and I want my name on the hat in Atlantis. <laughs> that won't work if it's not an alphabet. No, no. Right. <laughs> so, you know, because the, the, the people who sew the things on the hat have to know how to do that. Right, so right. so there was the, it was definitely the right decision. Yeah. <laughs> From their point from, of view. Yeah, yeah. And it, uh, and it looks good. Yeah. It looks now, good. from the language point of view, the, the actual sound, tell us about that. That was opposite, an opposite experience from Klingon. Okay, right. Klingon, the idea was to make it alien and non-Earth-like and, and weird. Right. There's a line in the movie, in Atlantis, where, well, there's a scene in the movie where, where our guys, our explorers, get to Atlantis somehow or other and encounter the Atlanteans. And the Atlanteans are speaking Atlantean, but all of a sudden the Atlanteans start speaking all kinds of earth languages. They speak a little bit of French and Chinese and Spanish and all these things. 
and eventually kind of hone in on English. And so the rest of the, the encounters, for the most part, are, are in English. And one of the characters says to Milo, the linguist, how did they learn our language so fast? And Milo says, oh, that's because their language is a root language. It's the language it's that all... It's all, a proto-Indo-European. It's the language that all the world's languages came from. And I said to them, no, <laughs> this, this doesn't quite work that way. Um, so I came up with a couple other explanations for why they learned the language so fast. But they kept the line in the movie anyway. And it's, it, you know, for storytelling purposes, right. it's, it's, it's fine. fine. Um, and most but, people won't even know. Right. And, but what I thought is, okay, even though I don't believe that this is the language that all the world's languages came from, there has to be something about it such that Milo could believe it, even if he's wrong. Something to lead him to that, to that conclusion. Right. So, mirror image of Klingon, I use the most common sounds and the most common grammatical structures okay. for Atlantean. Well, makes sense. Uh, right. So, so it's much easier to pronounce <laughs> right. than Klingon is. Um, and for vocabulary, I did look at Proto-Indo-European, you know, okay. the language that the European and Indian languages, right. India-Indian languages came from. Uh, I looked at, not Chinese, but Proto-Sino-Tibetan. Okay. Um, I, I looked at uh, Hebrew, I figured that was ancient enough, I didn't get into <laughs> yeah. to Proto-Semitic or anything like that. And, and pulled things from there. Now, from the, for the Indo-European one, since English is an Indo-European language, there's a lot of words in English that sound like the Proto-Indo-European word. And Proto-Indo-European has worked, been worked out pretty well. But if the word existed in, in Proto-Indo-European and did not sound like the English word, then I used that for Atlantean. If it did sound like the English word, then I didn't. Because, right. because then it would sound like English, right. even though the you intent was it was Proto-Indo-European. Right. Um, most of the vocabulary I just made up. But when I could find something to latch on to in one of these languages, I did that. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. What about creating languages fascinates you? I mean, you obviously love it. I mean, you, you do it, you created this whole dictionary kind of on a lark. I mean, what, what fascinates you about this? Uh, the main thing, I mean, there was, there's two things. There's, 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 there's kind of the mathematical thing mm -hmm. of systems, because languages are systems, mm -hmm. and it's fun to, to play with the systems and, and, and figure out how they work and stuff like that. Uh, there's a lot of people. You know, people say, how, how unique to make up a language? It's not that unique. Lots and lots and lots of people have made up languages. Right. Very few of them end up in 70 millimeter, but lots of people <laughs> right. made up languages. Um, usually when people make up languages, it's, it's for one of, one of three reasons, the third one being it's fun. Uh, the other two is they want to correct the defects of natural languages. Natural languages are vague and ambiguous and lead to communication problems and things right, like that. Right. So I'm going to make a language that's absolutely unambiguous, absolutely logical, right. and solve the world's problems. Right. One. Another one is, is an aid to international communication. Two people don't understand each other because they speak two different languages. If there was some neutral language that everybody spoke that was nobody's first language or not the first language of any nation, then everyone's on an equal footing. Because if you have an international meeting of some sort, and, it's, and the language of, of the meeting is in French, then those people coming from countries whose language is French are kind of one up on everybody right, else. Right, absolutely. But if it's a language that's nobody's, no country's language, then everyone's the same. And that's the sort of, sort of the idea behind Esperanto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which, that hasn't really taken off. Well, it has, not, not the way that some people have envisioned, yeah. but it's still spoken, there's Esperanto-speaking communities all, all over the world still. Yeah. And actually, one of the first interviews I ever did about Klingon, uh, after I did the interview, I did the interview over the phone, and when it was done, I said to, it was not, not for the radio, it was for print. And when the interview was done, I said to the guy, where's this going to appear? He says, I don't know yet. I said, oh, great. You know, see. Anyway, a few months later, he sent me the publication. And there was my interview you know, in the newsletter of the Esperanto Society of Idaho. And it was written in Esperanto. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, so the mathematics, I can understand. So there's that. that. And there's also, there's also the, 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 I don't know, the, the semantic aspects or something. Because in, in order to translate from one language to another, you have to really know what you're saying. The, from the from the starting language, right? And it's not as straightforward as you think until you try to put it into the words of the other language. And the more similar the languages are and the cultures are to each other, the easier it is because the references are the same and things right. like that. But the more different they are, the more distinct they are, the harder it is. So you have to say, all right, what am I trying to get across here? Because this word in in the starting language does not exist in what the, what the language is called the target language, right. language I'm translating into. 
what am I getting at here? What am I really trying to say? When I'm going to translate Shakespeare, what is he really trying to say here? Right. Not what does this word mean, but what is the thought? The intent behind it. Right, right. And which makes you focus on, on a couple of things. It makes, makes you focus on, on the meaning and what, you know, what you're trying to say, but also on the structure of the language you're coming from, trying to figure out what that's all about. Right. And so on. You know, here's a word in, in, in English, and there's two or three words that mean that in the other language. Wait a minute, what's the difference? How do I know if I'm choosing the right one? Or vice versa. Right. There's three words for it in English. I've chosen the right one. There's only one word for that in the other language. Is something getting lost? Is that too vague? I'm going to have to add a little bit more explanation so people know what I'm talking about. So this whole, it, it, it forces you to think about thinking, basically, mm -hmm. uh, which, which is just fascinating. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much for taking this moment to chat with us. You're Anything welcome. else you want to say? Kapla! Yeah. So uh, could I have you read a little bumper for the podcast? Sure. Well, uh, I think I have a copy of it. I'd ask you to say it in Klingon, but I don't know if that's possible or not. So. So. Hello, sci-fi fans, this is your name. Yeah, <laughs> people have done it. <laughs> All right. Hello, sci-fi fans, this is Mark Okran, the creator of the Klingon language, and you're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Sci Let me say that again, Sci-Fi yeah. Diner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you'd be amazed at people that get that wrong, because <laughs> of dinner. dinner. Yeah. I'm not the creator. I'm going to Jimmy Doohan is the creator. He is. You know, he's, so he's you're the uh, the expander, or the full yeah. the authority. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whatever you want to say. Hello, sci-fi fans. This is Mark Okren, and I worked on the Klingon language for the Star Trek movies and TV shows. And you're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I really appreciate you taking a moment to talk with us. This is fun. Oh, this is great. Fun. I love I love it, and I, I love the fact that I, I love hearing what goes into. Languages, mm -hmm. languages. I wish I had more time to study them. Mm -hmm. So, but I, it's it's really enjoyable. When you mentioned the whole uh, object, verb, subject, yeah, yeah. or or ob what was it? Object, subject, verb. Is that object, verb, subject? Yeah. Um, made me think of. I was just teaching my students. We were looking at the etymology of words because um, we were doing definition essays, and I said one of them is the etymological definition. And I would, and I'd gone back to look at the word like. And if you go back to the 14th century, um, in the Old English, at one point, when you would say, I like it, mm -hmm. you would say, it likes me, at one point. Which made me think of that. Mm -hmm. And I said, so, instead of the movie, like, I like the movie, it would be like, the movie likes me. Well, you know, in, in, in Spanish or something, it's, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Not, not quite, but what you say is, it, it, you know, it, it, it pleases me. It's pleasing to me. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is kind of odd. It's yeah. totally odd. But, it, but I, I found it fascinating now that you're saying that. There, it has its basis. There's a basis yeah. in history. Oh, yeah. But we, yeah. Don't, we don't do it much anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And there's much. some interesting things, too, because I was just saw, um, was, was it Two Gentlemen of Verona Shakespeare? Okay. Play in Washington. And one of the things you learn... You know that the English teachers like to teach. And I'm going to mess this up. Is is when you use as and when you use like. Right. And we tend to use like all over the place. Right. And no, no, no. You should say as there. And I forget exactly what the context <laughs> was. Oh yeah, I'm not sure. But you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Um, and here I'm listening to Shakespeare. Like, 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 like. So this whole rule about using as, someone made up afterwards. Right, right. <laughs> Which is true about all these words. Ending sense with a preposition, all that stuff. Someone made that up. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. I often think about it with the word ain't. Mm -hmm. And that being such a social, it was, it, was, it was totally a social thing because the contraction does make sense. Yeah, and we don't we don't have that yeah. contraction. We don't. Yeah. Uh, my, my son's fond of saying amped. I am not amped. Yeah, right. But I, you know, this whole social stature thing, and you know, we don't use ain't, but ain't really is a logical right. contraction. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm like, not sure where that, where that stigma came from. I had heard, I don't know, I had heard somewhere that it was a, it was used in higher classes in New England in the 1700s, 1800s, mm -hmm. and the lower class began to use it, and suddenly the upper class of we aren't going to use it right. anymore because the lower class is not using it. We need something to distinguish ourselves, and so it became a sign of being uneducated. I don't know if that's a real story or not. That's so, but things like that happen. Yeah, yeah they do, and it makes sense. You know, like the, like the origin of the word okay. You know, it's kind of fascinating. Nobody knows. Yeah, there's <laughs> these theories, but nobody knows. Anyway, thank you so well, much.